This Tridio production is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and made possible by you, our listener. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit tridio.com slash donate. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, episode number 47. I'm a doctor. I've lived for over 2,000 years. I am Scottish. I can complain about things. Hi, I'm Don Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. Today, we're discussing the classic Doctor Who episode, The Daleks. And joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going? So let's start by listening to the uh, trailer to this uh, first Doctor's uh, uh, serial episode, The Dalek. I'm sorry, The Daleks, because that, that makes a difference, uh, as we it will does. see coming up next week. So here's the trailer for The Daleks. The planet is dead, totally dead. Whatever it was destroyed everything that was living. Over 500 years ago, there were two races on this planet. We are the survivors of a final war. The Daleks. And the pause. Emergency! Emergency! If I don't get the fluid link back, the four of us will die. Daleks! The tall people wish to live in peace. Let us work together to rebuild our world. No! It's a trap! Get out of here! Run! They are to be exterminated! This senseless evil killing... Ah! That was very Inception like. I like that trailer. <laughs> so, uh, so the Daleks. This is a first Doctor episode. It's uh, it was seven uh, episodes long. They the original series, as we know, has the uh, was serialized, and so this was seven of the serial episodes. Uh, it's a first Doctor adventure. Uh, it was broadcast in uh, between December of nineteen sixty three and February of nineteen sixty four. Um, it's uh, the the in the first season of the uh, fourth Doctor, um, and in, in, it, it's the second uh, story, in fact, yes. uh, ever broadcast. Right. So mm-hmm. after the Unearthly Child slash a hundred thousand BC Caveman story, this is the second Doctor Who story. Right. Right. This is, picks up sort of where we left off when we talked about uh, the that we we did that episode on the Unearthly Child before a few weeks ago. Uh, that's right. So we are continuing with the traveling with Susan. The, the doctor's granddaughter, uh, Ian and Barbara, who are uh, teachers at uh, Susan's school, and they're trying to get home. Uh, and they're actually struggling with the fact that they're with the idea of getting home. So that's one of the interesting points of drama here. They're not enthusiastic companions at this point. They're no. really concerned. They were involuntary. And they, and they, yeah. And they actually yeah. Ian actually throws it in the doctor's face of you stole us away from our time. You you kidnapped us basically right and and to point out the the the, obvi- the obvious bit since this is only the second story of the uh, doctor uh this is the introduction of the daleks who are the most famous of all 
the doctors, uh, uh, the villains in Doctor Who, the the doctors' enemies, um, and and a lot of who they are, even to this day, is established in this story, uh, which is mm-hmm. kind of amazing. It is kind of funny too to think about because the Daleks are are probably the most famous villains of Doctor Who, and yet when they first came out, it's kind of a famous story of uh, from Sidney Newman, who was the head of uh, TV for or uh, of a uh, drama for the BBC, he was upset because he didn't want any bug-eyed monsters in Doctor Who. Or he robots. loves science fiction or robots. He loves science fiction, but he didn't want the bug-eyed monsters specifically. And uh, he thought that this was like the epitome of that, almost like was thumbing their nose at him. But then I, I guess he uh, became kind of placated by that, at least according to Wikipedia, because he uh, saw how popular they really were and how much how much they became an important part of the series. Yeah, in a way, the Daleks are the worst of both of his worlds because they're both bug-eyed monsters and robots. <laughs> bug-eyed yep. monsters inside a robot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, the 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 show though, this story played a crucial role in Doctor Who's history though, because as you mentioned, Father Corey, it the Daleks just became insanely popular in England mm-hmm. at the time, and it was it was called Dalek Mania, you know, based on Beatlemania. And, um, and, you know, they had all kinds of Dalek merchandising, which was unusual for the time, you know, merchandising TV shows was not a big thing at the time. Uh, and a lot of people have credited this story, the Daleks as ensuring the future of the show, because, you know, the individual episode and unearthly child was a good episode, but then you got weeks of this boring caveman story. Mm -hmm that, you know, was just really painful to watch if you've ever watched it all. And the show needed to knock it out of the park if it was going to survive, because a lot of people thought, you know, this show, this is a kid show. It's going to run for a few weeks or months, and then that's going to be it, which is the fate of most kid shows at the time. And there was no dream that it was going to have a more than 50 year history. And it's really this episode that's sort of the or this story that's the turning point of all that that ensured the long term future of Doctor Who. That's because I think in in many ways it's this this story has I mean, while it's somewhat long at seven episodes and and it and it kind of it drags a little bit in the middle. I have to I have to admit Mm -hmm. there's a lot of complexity in the characters and in the in the uh, in the conflict, uh, there's mo- many layers uh, in in this, and and it's and even to the sense of where the hero there isn't there isn't one necessarily a hero in in all of this. I mean, the doctor kind of comes off as a jerk at times, yeah. <laughs> and he's definitely a kind of a jerk to to Barbara and Ian, and um, he lies to them. Um, Ian kind of tries to be the hero, but he kind of at, at points. He gets his comeuppance and 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 is uh, has mm-hmm. to defer back to the doctor and they're very human and they're very uh, you know even the doctor who's not human but they're very flawed in that way. <laughs> One of the and, and there's a kind of innate tension between the doctor and Ian because the doctor you know played by William Hartnell is an old man and not in good health. And he's the intellectual hero of the show. Mm -hmm. And then Ian is the action hero of the show. And so there's this kind of 
trading back and forth dynamic of who's acting heroic at the moment. And then one or the other has to kind of knuckle into the other occasionally. By the way, the, the fact that the doctor comes across as a jerk and that he, he certainly is not the towering moral figure he comes to be later is something that's actually touched on way far down the line in Peter Capaldi's era. There's an episode uh, called Into the Dalek uh, in the Twelfth Doctor's time where they they get – it's like Fantastic Voyage inside a Dalek. So they get shrunk down and they go inside a Dalek to fix it because it's a good Dalek somehow and (laughs) temporarily – and uh, and the doctor is talking to the Dalek and says, you know, when I first started traveling, I I was just running. I didn't have really a sense of conscience and stuff. I was just on the run. And then I went to Scarrow and I ran into you lot and that changed me. And the and you and, and that we see that in this episode, the doctor is still the amoral kidnapper that we met in An Unearthly Child at the beginning of this story. But as the story progresses, he starts to move into a genuinely heroic role and becomes a leader of men and helps the Thals um, deal with the Dalek, uh, the Daleks and so forth. And so he, we do see his beginning to transition into a truly heroic mode. You know, I should recap quickly what this, what happens in this uh, mm-hmm seven uh, uh, story, uh, seven episodes. Uh, so the TARDIS takes the, has brought the, them from, a, you know, uh, prehistoric Earth to the planet Skaro, where they meet two indigenous races. There's the Dals, or Daleks, uh, who we all know, and the Thals. And the Thals, in contrast to the Daleks, are beautiful humans, like humanoids, uh, who They're are Nordics. pacifists. Right. They're all uh, are, uh, blonde. They're like the perfect Aryans. I wonder if that would have had a, a re- resonance, in fact, at the time in 1963, this uh, Aryan looking group of pacifists. Um, it might have been interesting. And it, it, one of the things I found interesting was is that the Thals are the former warrior race and the Daleks were the former intellectual uh, philosopher race. Uh, and they've you know, sort of swapped roles on Scarrow. Um, mm-hmm. And so the doctor and, and Ian and Barbara have to convince the Thals of, that they need to fight for their survival. Uh, the planet is completely irradiated. Um, the Thals have figured out a way to survive outside, outside um, using some With radiation drugs, radiation drugs, whereas the Daleks, they they have been mutated to, uh, and the, now survive solely inside their armored casing. Um, and in fact, they they need the radiation. I think by the end of it, they just, they realize they they need the radiation um, at some point. I, I I was a little confused on that point, so maybe I'm wrong. I might be wrong on that. Uh, so we can you can kind of correct me on that as we go along. But um, they launch a two pronged attack on the Dalek city. That and then uh, all the Daleks are killed, or are they? Of course not. During <laughs> during the course of the fighting, when they cut off their power supply, um, so. You, you know, we pick up the story where they they've landed on this planet, and I love the, the there's a classic sci-fi trope where the the doctor says to Susan, "Look at that dial and tell me what the radiation reading is." And she looks at the dial and it says, "Oh, it's just fine." And then as soon as everyone turns away from the dial, it turns up into the danger zone, 
yeah i just love it's just it's a classic science fiction trope the 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 sensor that says one thing while you're looking at it and then as soon as you turn away uh turns to the other thing that it should that you don't want it to it has something to do with heisenberg's uncertainty principle i think <laughs> yes it's or very, the watch very, pot that boils <laughs> yeah yeah I, I i appreciate the fact that they're even checking the sensors before going outside because <laughs> right. you know that's normally something we breeze past on science fiction it's you would in reality there would be all kinds of tests that you would do before going out into an alien environment including like shoving a mouse outside first and seeing if it keels over you know? <laughs> yeah. just to see are there any microbes out there that could get us exactly so uh as we had mentioned ian and barbara are you know they they're actually they kind of talk with one another and they 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 decide to stick you know they don't want to go outside they want the doctor to take them home and he's basically kind of tells them no no we we need to stop and take a look first but you know uh, being the doctor he wants to to look around and they decide to stick close to the doctor instead of staying in the TARDIS because as they say he has a knack for getting into trouble um and and they and it turns out they really actually resent him i mean there's that as you mm-hmm. said Jimmy there's that resentment for kidnapping them and taking them away from home and putting them in danger. Um, so this, so th- that's how we begin this adventure. Uh, the planet is dead. There's a forest uh, that's reduced to ash and stone. Everything is petrified. Um, that's, that's something I wanted to comment on. I really like the petrified jungle that they've mm-hmm. got here. And they're kind of marveling at it. Uh, and it is neat. Um Part of me, though, was going, well, wait, we have those here on Earth. There's one over in Arizona. I've been there. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so, you know, but especially to a British audience at the time, a petrified forest is like a really exotic thing. And it's neat to get to see one on screen. They make the the plants look a little different than they look here on Earth. I mean, some things are recognizably trees, but they also have these vines that don't exactly look like vines from Earth. And then they run across this metal animal that's mm-hmm. petrified, and and they talk about the fact it looks it's kind of looks kind of like one of those finback dinosaurs, only it's much smaller. Mm-hmm. And um, Dimetrodon, I think, is what those are. And it's it's frozen there because it's it's dead, it's petrified, but it's also made of metal, and and that's just a great concept. And the doctor even speculates about. Well, if it's made of metal, then it might have been a predator that would attract its victims by magnetism. And so they're <laughs> they're gesturing at a whole ecosystem with metallic organisms in it. And 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 what would the implications of that be? And I I just really like the um the world building they're doing here just on the conceptual level with the petrified forest, the metal animal, the metal animal ecosystem and all of that. I think it's just really neat. It was kind of funny though. I I kind of, I chuckled because the, uh, the word magnetism shows up a lot, magnet and magnetism and magnetized because, you know, they have this, Oh yes, that operates under magnetism. And then the, Mm -hmm. the door was magnetized shut and the Dalek, shell was magnetized to the floor and, and, and everything, you know, there's so many times that everything was magnetized in this episode. Well, I, I guess if you're growing up on a planet <laughs> with a magnetic ecosystem, then maybe you get that. Or exactly. maybe they just thought magnets were cool back in the sixties. Well, exactly. in, a, in a way you can almost date um, science fiction by the concepts, <clears throat> uh, the, the science concepts that it latches onto, uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, in, in the, uh, I'm trying to think, you know, 
So lots of when, when there's lots of radiation, you're looking at 50s and 60s, you know, because of the popular concern about nuclear war and radiation. Um, yes. Whereas, you know, uh, today it'd be more biological. Right. Exactly. So a lot of science fiction is more about uh, biological forms and uh, climate change and that sort of environmental factors often, you know, come up in science fiction stories. So it's very interesting because to, to see how that plays uh when we look at the 10th planet the the way that they look at space travel from an earth perspective is very much part of it the time and place in which the story was created by the the creators of dr mm -hmm. who mm -hmm. so i, I find it interesting one, one bit of technology that i i was fascinated by in this that we never see it but they talk about it and it's something that i wouldn't have expected at all in in talking about why Scaro is so devastated, the but there are buildings standing because you know we get to see the Dalek city from a distance. It's a matte painting, but it looks really cool with all these domes and everything, which we see a really nice a form of again uh, in yeah. last season. I think it was of Doctor Who or the season right. before last. Yeah. Yeah. And and so, uh, you know, they're asking, well, how does this atomic war fit with all these buildings still being here and they don't look damaged? And the doctor explains they must have used neutron bombs because neutron bombs release, you know, a lot of neutrons as radiation and they kill life forms, but don't have the big blast that standard A-bombs and H-bombs have. Right. And so I had not realized that they would have had the theory behind neutron bombs known broadly enough at this time that it would have penetrated popular culture to the point it would be talked about on a kid show. Yeah, I remember neutron bombs coming up in the 80s as a thing. Uh, or I remember them in the late 70s yeah. during the Carter administration. Yeah, but the, the theory must have been there uh, in the early 60s. Yeah, that, I, did well, I'm, I'm sure, I did find that interesting. Well, I'm sure the theory was there pretty much from the time of developing the original bombs yeah. dropped during world war two but i'm sure it was one of these things too where it was much easier to do what they did at the time in the 40s than you know the technology wasn't there yet right yeah you know speaking of technology i, I was a little fun, uh, fun that they were spending so much time talking about the doctor's food replicator uh it was uh, yeah. an object <laughs> of much interest yeah. uh you know talking about the the diff which is a lot of the like future food of the sixties came in cube form. I mean, Star Trek did yeah. it and all the, all the science fiction uh, did it, uh, which is again, another interesting commentary on what people oh, thought the future Santa would Claus be. Conquers the Martians. Right. Yeah. It, it's, it's, yeah. it, you know, there was a time in which people thought that food would go, would be very scientific and very manufactured. Uh, but it was very interesting to, to see them with a food replicator making food. Uh, we, we don't often see that in in uh, in New Who. In fact, we don't see it at all. Uh, they usually pick up food along the way. They somehow. go make chips. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, I think the I think the idea of um, the food coming in little cubes is based on um, a couple things. One of them is just a general drive for efficiency and taking it to ridiculous proportions, you know, thinking, oh, you just stick a pill in your mouth and, and that's it. You know, it's more efficient to do it that way. Um, not, you know, neglecting the fact that um, we're designed and psychologically need to chew and swallow and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But um, at the time, you know, vitamins were a new big thing. And I think the little food pill idea is just an extension of, oh, in the future, we could just have 
it'd be like vitamins, only it'd be a complete meal and we'd taste it. So it wouldn't taste like you're eating a Flintstones vitamin. Well, and, uh, you know, the 50s and 60s was the rise of convenience foods, you know, TV dinners and, mm -hmm. you know, uh, yeah. prepackaged meals and uh, the convenience factor, the manufacture. There was even a sense that manufactured food was healthier than natural food. I mean, it was yeah, it's kind yeah, of exactly. a, it's very funny. Um, well, we, we look back funny, and it looks my, weird. We need more processing in our food. Yeah, yeah. yeah. exactly. <laughs> well, I, I kind of it was funny because I was as I was watching that scene, I was thinking of uh, the original Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. The Gene Wilder mm -hmm. version. Yeah. And, you know, there's a scene where he's got the gum that's the entire meal. You sit there and chew the gum and you can taste every course, the the tomato soup and the roast beef and the mashed potatoes. <laughs> and, you know, but of course, then they turn it, you know, they get to the dessert and she turns into the giant blueberry. <laughs> you know, yeah. Same, almost kind of tweaking on that, you know, like that movie kind of tweaks on that mindset. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I got to say, uh, Willy Wonka is, it feels to me like a form of Doctor Who. Uh, it's always kind of the, that. Yeah, that, that, very similar uh, character. Yeah, um, very similar. And with the weird magical place he lives and all that stuff. Where, yeah. Which is bigger on the inside than on the outside. Exactly. <laughs> At certain point. <laughs> so um, they encounter their first, you know, they first realize that there might be people there when they walk outside the TARDIS and there's a silver metal box on the ground, which I love the fact that Ian like picks up a stick and pokes it at the box while protecting his face with his hand because great idea because <laughs> you know if it explodes that'll that'll be that'll be uh, all great for you um uh, it turns out it's a box of vials and they don't understand i like the way that they slowly develop the idea that they're they're suffering from radiation poisoning you know they begin mm -hmm. to have these subtle moments where like barbara has a headache and uh the the doctor doesn't you know doesn't feel well and and we develop this idea that maybe they're getting sick, uh, and then we find out that what this box is was right. was the medicine that they that the Thals had exactly. left for them. Uh, I like that they they was it's subtle. It's it's not in well, your and, face. And they found ways to explain it that made sense. Oh, the doctor was just tired because it was a long walk, and he's old. You know, Barbara mm -hmm. has a headache because it's hot out, or something like that. You know, it's something yeah, but, reasonable. What, all, all that is really good and really subtle. What is, um, what is an obvious plot hole that they later try to patch, but I don't think very successfully, is why didn't the Thal stick around and explain, here are some radiation drugs for you? You know, well, um, I, why just leave a box? I think at one point, one of the Thals explains that he tried to talk to Susan and she got scared of him and ran away yeah. and they didn't right. want to confront and and so they they kind of patch that, but yeah, um, but it's kind of but it's not a very successful patch. <laughs> hey, welcome, stranger. Here, here's some medicine. You might need this. Yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> there's a couple of holes like that. Um, but so let, let's move forward. I don't want to spend too much oh, time on the preliminaries unless you have something, Jimmy. Before we do, there's I, I should mention one of the most famous things from this story has to do with the radiation drugs, um, because William Hartnell or Bill as he was often called, um, had, you know, his, his memory was going at this point. He had trouble remembering his lines. And so he would often mess up his lines. And, um, and these became known in fandom as Billy Fluffs, whenever Bill Hartnell would fluff one of his lines. And one of the most famous Billy Fluffs is right in this episode, where later on, instead of saying radiation drugs, he says radiation gloves. 
And, and so, you know, if you, when you're listening, when you're watching this episode uh, or this story, listen for that because it's clear as a bell when he does it. <laughs> well, so earlier, earlier in, in our, in our podcast, I wanted to say that the Thals are protected by their radiation gloves, yes, but it right. uh, wasn't quite quick enough. <laughs> um, so the doctor tricks them uh, that, the, you know, Ian and Barbara, they want to, they want to leave. They like, okay, this is an interesting plan. Now it's time to go. You know, you need to take us back home. And the doctor plays a dastardly trick on them by yeah. by claiming that the fluid link uh, broke or, or or somehow and that the mercury inside leaked out, which, frankly, if this leaking mercury, that's a pretty bad thing. <laughs> like, uh, mer- yeah. Loose mercury is very bad for your health. Uh, but fun to play with. But that they're going to uh, <laughs> they should go to the city that they saw and and find some more. And I'm thinking to myself. Like if I had to go into Boston, say, because I live near Boston, and find mm-hmm. a bottle of mercury, I I wouldn't even have the first clue where, like, maybe a hospital, I, I maybe like, never mind an alien planet that I don't know anything about. Like three people, one or four yeah. people wandering around an alien planet looking for bottles of mercury. Uh, that's that was a bit of a stretch for me, but okay, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Um. Well, the other thing is, is that they decide to separate. They go to the city and they separate to kind of look around. Is is that really a good idea to separate in a strange city when they're when you already determine that there are unknown people wandering around? Um, so we we find out it's a bad idea because Barbara ends up uh, getting uh, locked into an elevator and taking taking to a strange place where she encounters uh, a, a toilet plunger wielding something. Uh, and ends up a prisoner. And we get a cliffhanger. Yes, a cliffhanger. That that ends the first uh, episode of this serial, the the Dead Planet. And by, and by oh, the way, the, the fluid uh, link shows up quite a bit in Doctor Who. He's always yeah. having troubles with these fluid links. <laughs> yeah, but in, in, by the way, um, I, I you, you mentioned the title of the individual episode, the Dead Planet. One of the things I wanted to mention about this is that this period in Doctor Who. The stories, you know, are stretched over multiple weeks, but they didn't yet have a story title for the overall story that they broadcast to the audience. They they may have had it behind the scenes, but they didn't show it to the whole audience. And instead, each individual episode has its own title. So every week there would be a new title. And I I love the 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 titles in these early episodes in this serial because they're things like Next week, the escape or the <laughs> yeah. rescue or yeah. something like that, and they're these fantastically general titles that yeah. would apply to all kinds of different stories. It's like you guys really don't think you're going to be on the air for that long, do you? You're not planning these things that far ahead. <laughs> so here are the titles: the Dead Planet. Next week, the survivors. Next week, the escape. Next week, the ambush. Next week, the expedition. And then next week. The ordeal, and then finally the rescue. Yeah, so <laughs> fantastically general. The only one of those that would you know work long term would be the dead planet. Everything else is just a plot element that's going to happen over and over again in the fifty year history. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, one of the things that uh, was kind of fun was as they're walking or looking around, and when they finally discover that they're being irradiated by uh by this dangerous levels of radiation uh, on this planet uh it's because they encounter a geiger counter that is registering radiation levels with a label that says danger in english yeah it's yeah it's taped on this 
dial. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but of course, the TARDIS has a translation circuit, and that's what's what it's, it's messing with their heads. But uh, yeah. but uh, you know, it's just kind of, it was kind of funny. So you know, we find out that the Daleks and the Thals have lived together on Scarrow, but are enemies, uh, and that the Dals the th- the oh, I'm going to do this a million times. The Thals and- have drugs to protect them from radiation, but the Daleks don't. Um, uh, yeah, and they haven't had a lot of contact recently. Yes. So, like, when the Thals show up, they're not really sure if the Daleks are even still alive. Right, because the Daleks have been living underground under the city for so long, uh, and the Thals have been living far away in the mountains, but came down uh, to, get food. to get food because the food has become scarce. Um, so the Doctor and the companions are captured by the Daleks, um, uh, I, I like the idea the the idea of Dalek room service. I found that quite interesting as they were being held captive. The Daleks <laughs> mm-hmm. bringing them uh, dinner. Um, we find out that the Daleks were teachers and philosophers, as I mentioned, uh, whereas the Thals were the warriors. Um, the very interesting thing is in the beginning, the Doctor takes the Daleks' side against the Thals. Um, he kind of mm-hmm. he, he kind of um, it, it was especially interesting given we know their history and how they become. Uh, mortal enemies um but he he believes that the daleks are the are the aggrieved party in this situation that he encounters them in um whereas uh ian and barbara and susan naturally feel a connection or feel a natural connection to the thals for whatever reason um and i find it very interesting the, the i call the thals you call them the the northern europeans i refer to them as the blonde oh, yeah. the blonde surfer people <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason I call the reason I refer to them as Nordics is because that's a term in the UFO community. Um, so you know how the stereotypical alien these days is a gray with the big bulging head and short stature. Um, but in, among UFO aficionados, there are several other stereotypical races, allegedly, including reptilians and insectoids and Nordics that look like human beings with blonde hair. <laughs> okay. I wonder how much of that is informed by so those like, episodes. I, I guess they're just from Scarrow. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> um, they they escape. Uh, there's a long sequence of them being held uh, by the Daleks, and there's a they're getting sicker. They want to um, to send. Now I'm trying to remember. Uh, Initially, it's so so Ian wants to go to the TARDIS to get what they need because that's where the drugs are. Yes. But he can't get into it by himself because it's and this is another neat bit of world building. Um, Susan tells him that the lock on the TARDIS is a security device and if it's biometric. And so if it's keyed to her and the doctor and if anybody else tries to force their way in, it will like melt. And you won't be able to get in. And so that's actually maybe not the best security device, but <laughs> because it would then prevent you from getting in. But um, but uh, but she needs to be the one to go. And so this is a way of forcing our young teenage hero into right. a dangerous situation. Well, there's, there's also the, the idea that the Daleks had paralyzed Ian from the waist down with their ray. Yeah. Probably the right. only time we ever see them actually use their ray for other, anything other than exterminate. Yeah, it's like he. Wow, Ian is the only person to get shot and not die. <laughs> right. 
uh, yes, yeah, so that was another one. It's like, why do they like they've they felt no compunction about killing others willy nilly, in, even in these episodes. But for some reason, with Ian, they for reasons of plot, uh, of course, they they held they held back a little bit uh, and paralyzed Again, him. Uh, yet yet another sci fi trope that you will have five hundred thousand soldiers killed. But the heroes will just be captured or wounded <laughs> yeah, or right. some other way of not killed. So I, I think one element that the Daleks really don't have in place yet is the whole exterminate thing. Um, Although they use the term they, for the first time in, in this. They do actually say yeah, exterminate. Yeah, but they're not as they're they're not just the total killing machines right. that they later come to be character character character. That they later come to be. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's true. They, they, like, you know, later on, they will be, we hate everything that is not Dalek, and we must destroy it all. Um, and, and they're all about hatred. Where in this case, they're much more restrained, I, I suppose is a word you could use uh, for Dalek anyway. Yeah. Um, I, I, I did kind of skip over something, by the way, that is an interesting point. Um, when Barbara is now missing... And the doctor, having found out about the radiation poisoning, admits that the the fluid there's he actually sabotaged the fluid link to keep them there. Um, yep. And yep. but then says, but we sh they should leave immediately and abandon Barbara. This is this is where I kind yeah. of got the whole like, oh, the doctor's kind of a jerk. <laughs> yeah, uh, exactly. Um, this is not heroic behavior. Yes. Well, it, you know, there's that whole scene where okay, they finally convince them all but force them into the TARDIS to leave. And as they're looking at the scanner to watch the TARDIS take off, he sneaks down and unscrews the fluid link. Right. And mm -hmm. then, oh, gee, something is wrong. I wonder what it could be. <laughs> we better go and investigate. Right, right. And, it's, and so and then when he gets, you know, when his little subterfuge puts them in real danger, now he wants to uh, to, to run, to, to abandon Barbara. Um, well, Ian takes the fluid link from him uh, and won't let him, uh, you know, run off. And then they're, that's when they're captured. Um, so that's pretty much most of this episode is them being held captive uh, while uh, Susan uh, makes her way through the petrified forest, uh, nearly paralyzed with fear <laughs> the whole way. The, the five minute scene of her running against the background. <laughs> Yes. Well, in the uh, the 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 nineteen sixty era over dramatized uh, scared at, at her own shadow thing, which is uh, which is funny. But um, and and then she collects the anti radiation drugs, uh, and that's where this uh, episode ends. We get to the next episode, which is the escape, uh, and this is where Susan encounters the uh, the the Thal, the what's his name, Aladon. Um. And they are not disfigured as the uh, Daleks have been by their mutations, um, and we and we get all the explanation about the 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 Thals and the history their history with the Daleks, um, and she re she returns to bring the drugs, um, and then they capture the 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 prisoners capture a Dalek, and they yeah. and they do what Clara will eventually do, which is. Uh, go inside the Dalek uh, to manually operate out, it. Yeah, they scoop out the biological Dalek. And, eat, and uh, I, there are a couple things I really like about this scene. Now, first of all, the way they capture the Dalek is they figure out that the Daleks 
casings are run by static electricity transmitted through the floor. So they need to be in contact with the floor of the city. Um, and they then use an insulator to break the Dalek's contact with the floor. Now, uh, so this is fantastic. I, I love this because the Daleks have this great power distribution system. They have effectively wireless charging. You just put it on the surface and it keeps it supplied with electricity. <laughs> but they have not invented batteries. <laughs> yes. and, and so as soon as you break contact, the Daleks, the Dalek becomes immobile. It can't operate its suit. And it's like they the do eventually <laughs> develop that. They do eventually develop that ability, but it, yes, it is much well, later. They're like the terrible yeah. bumper cars at the uh, fair. <laughs> when, exactly. When the thing loses contact, like, that's probably where they. That's good. That's probably where they got the idea, actually, Dom. <laughs> Um, so they, uh, so they, they, they do that and then they scoop out the biological Dalek from within the, uh, the casing and already they're being coy with us about what do the Daleks look like. And for decades, this was a pretty big mystery. Now in New Who, we finally got to see clear images, you know, uh, 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 not just brief glimpses, right. but clear, stable images of what a biological Dalek really looks like. Yep. Um, but at this point, all we know because of Ian and the doctor's reaction is it's horrible. And they don't want to let Susan and Barbara look at it. And then they use the insulator cloth that they broke used to break contact with the floor, which then doesn't reactivate the Dalek for some reason once they take the insulator cloth out from underneath it. Um <laughs> They, they cover the biological Dalek with that and scoop it out and set it down. And all we see is like a clawed hand underneath the, uh, underneath the claw. Yeah. In fact, it reaches out from underneath. It's, it's not dead. Um, so uh, we, we've been talking a, a quite a while already and, uh, we're, we're not even halfway yeah. through. So I want to kind of jump ahead a bit. They, they stage this. Uh, they, they convince the Thals. Ian is like the serpent in paradise and he convinces the Thals. That they must give up their pacifist ways and 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 return to their violence in order to to defeat the Daleks, and they come up with this elaborate plan where they're going to have a two pronged assault. Uh, one group is going to go from behind, the other side of the city. They're going to have to travel through a dangerous swamp and through the mountains, underneath the mountains, uh, uh, on a path that must exist there. While the other group will assault from the front. Well, it turns out they're eventually. That they all meet before they see the Daleks anyway, so, so there's no there's no point to this whole <laughs> diversion through the mountains. They're trying to flank them, though. That's 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 you know reasonable tactics. That's good. it is. What, it's just what, it's just it's so sad that they they lose people along the way and that they have this terrible encounter uh, because for nothing. But I, I get it. It creates a um, plot story. <laughs> story. Yeah. What I like about this is. Um, Ian is very matter of fact about pacifism and he says it's great, but pacifism only works when everyone agrees. Mm -hmm. And, and he has this realist attitude and you think about this, this is 1963. So this is just 18 years after world war two and pacifism would not have been a big raging thing in Britain at the time. And, you know, people had an awareness of, there really are situations where you have to use violence. And Ian is very matter of fact about that. Um, he, it, we don't have the kind of, frankly, silliness 
that we get in the Peter Capaldi era, where he just totally snubs anybody who's a soldier just because they're a soldier. Right. Um, you know, that's just, and and so you have now in the 21st century a much less realistic attitude about the use right. of violence in the show than you had back then. They were much more realistic about it. And as the Thals begin to transition to this new, more aggressive lifestyle, we see them having internal dissensions. This is part of what you mentioned, Dom, about the characters being very complex. There's one character in particular uh, named Antidus, who is um, who's a coward. You know, I mean, he's his his as he, as he begins to actually have to be more aggressive. He encounters speed bumps on that road and and wants to turn back and is not uh, instantly a brave warrior as a result of the philosophical shift. And he ultimately ends up uh, self-sacrificing, though. So he has a character arc where he goes from being a coward to redeeming himself mm-hmm. and saving others by his self-sacrifice. Right. The, he has, the, he's hanging by a rope uh, in a, over a crevasse, and he'll, he's going to drag uh, Ian and uh, one of the other uh, Thals over the, the, the side, and so he cuts the rope to save them and uh, sacrificing his own mm-hmm. life. Um, wouldn't it be uh, sad if it was like a 10 foot drop and he's down at the bottom of the crevasse? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> leave him there. Uh, anyway, sorry. Uh, my, 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 uh, morbid, uh, sense of humor, but, um, they, uh, at one point the Daleks are torturing the doctor. Uh, we heard that in the trailer, the doctor, you know, kind of, uh, uh um, you know, screaming, you know, stop, stop. Uh, they're. Tr- I forget what is it that the, the Daleks were trying to to get from the Doctor at that point. Do you remember um, what oh, the point boy, of the torture was? I, I, you know, it's it was at a point in the story where a lot was going on, and I was having a little trouble keeping track uh, of mm-hmm. of the different elements. Um, quite honestly, and and that's actually something uh, that is good about this story is there's a lot going on. It's not just endless captures and escapes. Yeah. Um, They have, uh, and that's something I wanted to comment generally about. The scope of this story is big. Mm -hmm. Uh, It does go a little, it drags a little bit in places. You could probably whack it down by an episode or two. But but it's a big story for Doctor Who. And that's probably one of the reasons that it gets remade. Because they, they then used this exact story as the first Doctor Who movie starred, starring Peter Cushing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they also took the basic plot of this story and used it in future Dalek stories, but sort of uh, changed the set dressing, so to speak. But the core plot was the same. And so it's actually a, a testimony to the to the complexity and value of this story that it gets recycled in those ways. Yeah, I mean, this is essentially... We we see this again in that oh I wish I could remember the one I'm trying to reference the one where the doctor and Missy and and Clara go to Scarrow they encounter mm-hmm. um, the Davros. Davros thank you um, and that that whole that episode is essentially much like this story here I mean it picks up ma- major elements they you know Missy and Clara travel underground into the into the city and Clara goes inside a Dalek. And I mean, there's a lot of those elements in that story. So you're right. I mean, this is a, 
this is a big story and it's a good story. I mean, I, I might know like this. Sto these stories, have, they go all over the place there. They go from dead planets mm -hmm. to, you know, exploring like a, a city. Swamp. There's swamp with monsters. Right. There are underground caverns. There's all kinds of stuff. Right. They're prisoners. They have radiation sickness. They're fighting a war. I mean, there's there's all kinds of elements to this story. Um, and, and it's not just simply all tacked on there to extend it. It's all part of, you know, it all serves the purpose of telling a big story. I, I kind of feel like, though, it even the origins of this go back even further because what it's essentially the Mor Morlocks and the Eloy from H.G. Wells' Time Machine. You know, the, the dolls mm -hmm, are the sure. Eloy, the Daleks are the Morlocks who live underground, and, and they're, they're, the dolls are, they start off as sort of prey to the, the Daleks' predator, but the, the interlopers from another world or another time um, convince them to fight back. Um, mm -hmm. it, it's, and it's a sort of an end of Eden sort of story. Um, yeah. You know, the, where we, you know, whereas, um, the Thals are like Adam and Eve in a sense, although they're not exactly living in paradise in one sense, they're, they're, but they're innocent. They're in, right. And their innocence is they have to give up their innocence in order to live in quote unquote, the real world to deal with the evil that exists. Um, so it has a sort of timeless resonance in this story, which I think, like, as you say, I think it's one of the reasons this becomes so uh, iconic in Doctor Who lore and why it was so it, it did so much to keep Doctor Who alive. In, in terms of the Thals, it's sort of a rite of passage story. You know, it's where you have young people who, you know, are innocent in terms of the ways of the world, and then they grow into maturity and realize they have to take responsibility for themselves and do unpleasant things. And that's essentially the arc that the Thals follow here, um, even though they're not the central stars. Obviously, the Daleks are. Right. One of the things that I really liked about the end of this is it is a hard-won victory in the end. Right. Too often in science fiction, there is, oh, all we have to do is take out the critical failure point, and that fixes everything. You know, like you kill the mother vampire and all the other vampires die, or something like that. Or you'll have, you know, people, and this was a classic ending on Star Trek Voyager, the, the resolution of the episode involves people standing over consoles talking dramatically. Right. You know, and that's all that it is. Yeah. Um, in this, there's no magic fix. There is no single thing that has to be done. And it's an action oriented solution. Uh, you have a fight between the, the good guys and the bad guys. And it's a hard won victory. People die in it. And it's not everything is not just sewed up magically at the end. There is a genuine battle that has to be fought, and and there's dramatic value in seeing that happen, and not just giving us an easy fix. That's right. But by the way, uh, I was just looking it up. The the episodes from uh, Peter Capaldi Capaldi era that you've been talking about are the Magician Apprentice and Witches Familiar. Right. Yeah. Right. That's right. Those are. Episodes. I was trying to remember. It's like I couldn't. I had to go and look it up. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good. Good. And you know the the. the as we as we get to the end of this, you know, there's this moment in which, uh, you know, they they prevent the Daleks radiation release by turning off their power source, which will immobilize the Daleks and kill them. And 
They beg the doctor to repair their system, and the doctor refuses. He leaves them to die. Um, and that's a that's a somewhat a turning point in the you know for the doctor. I mean, as you said, Jimmy, this is this is the event that sort of as the 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 thirteenth doctor will will come back and say, I'm sorry, the twelfth doctor will come back and say, is um, the the moment when he went from being a wandering explorer to to being sort of a, a moral figure that he he decided you have to you have to act. Um, and and he makes a makes a very a momentous decision in this case to let them die um, to save the Thals, uh, and the Thals who you know disgusted by the death and the killing which goes against their morality are grateful that their that their struggle is finally over. But of course, it's interesting to look to 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 watch this as someone who has seen or who knows the fifty year history as opposed to someone who at the time might have seen this and said, oh, the happy ending. For us, it's a bittersweet ending because we know, of course, that the the Thals don't ultimately win, that they are ultimately wiped out. Well, they do, sir. They, actually, I think that's a little ambiguous. They clearly never achieve top dog status, but we do have later stories with Thals where they've gotten off of Scarrow. Okay. Um, there's a, there's a, a John Pertwee episode I know, uh, where I'm blanking on the name of it, but, um, he runs into the Thals on another planet, uh, that's not Scarrow and, um, they have an interstellar civilization that's still battling the Daleks. Okay. Okay. Um, which, we don't see them that, in the new uh, who we though. Of, we kind of flip by. Yeah. One, one point we kind of flip by too, is the Thals did not originally look human. They had more of a, a different look to them, at least originally. They show the kind of quickly the picture. They almost look reptilian, I, I think, as I recall. I think that was just armor, though. It, it could, I think Barbara even asked, because they're showing some Thal records that are like right. tribal records they've got printed on something, and they're not like on a computer display. They're physical. And, um, and it looks like a, kind of a medieval knight, Mm-hmm. Or that's the way it looked to me. And Barbara, I think, even comments on, oh, it's like a warrior. Um, but then they also have what the original form of the Daleks was, and they don't show us. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like infuriating. It's like, okay, and you can show us what they used to look like, even if you want to tease us about what they look like now, that's fine. But, you know, come on. You just showed us the old-style fall. Show us the old-style Dalek. I mean, make them look beautiful or something. So um, one last story element, which was kind of interesting, was that there was apparently a romantic subplot for Barbara in this uh, with mm-hmm. the Thal Ganatas. Uh, and although I don't think we ever actually they don't actually didn't actually develop it very much other other than this final moment where uh, they kiss just before Barbara goes into the TARDIS to leave. Um, but I thought that was interesting because it seemed to me that they had been trying to develop this relationship between Ian and Barbara. Um, so whether this is, uh, uh, I, I don't know whether that eventually ever develops. Uh, you guys would know better than I would. But I just found that there was an interesting little moment at the end of this episode. Well, Ian and, and Barbara definitely do uh, eventually have a romance between them, although it's understated because of you know British TV, children's TV at the time. By the way, now that you mention it, um, that same element, uh, the John Pertwee story that I was thinking of is Planet of the Daleks. Mm 
And you have, it's, it's another one where they took basically the plot of the Daleks and recycled it. So you have Daleks and Thals running around in the jungle. And guess what? The Doctor's companion, Joe Grant, has a developing romance with one of the Thals, but then leaves at the end. <laughs> and, and so it's really actually quite close to this story. Oh, that's funny. So, uh, by the yeah. way, one little bit of last little bit of trivia for me about this story. Um, so the Daleks apparently die at the end of this story, but they were such good villains. They get brought back repeatedly, <laughs> but, but there's never an explanation. So right. we don't know. There's been fan conjecture about, well, how did maybe it was just this one Dalek city that died and there are other Dalek cities. But um, but there's never been an, an, an on-camera explanation for how the Daleks survived their initial encounter with the Doctor. Daleks are just the interstellar cockroaches. You know, homicidal yeah. interstellar <laughs> cockroaches. But Aren't all cockroaches homicidal? I've always feared them. <laughs> so uh, I, one thing I point out is a, a very funny little, just a little era, uh, aspect of the era. There was a couple scenes, uh, battle scenes, where Daleks were all in the control room and where some of them were very obviously flat stand-ups, like very flat, like mm-hmm. two-dimensional Daleks. <laughs> and I just thought it was very, it was kind of humorous. So, so you know, we never did explain why are we talking about the Daleks episode here uh, instead oh, yeah. of about a regeneration episode, which is what we've been doing. We've been going through regeneration episodes. Well, concurrently, we've been going through the uh, first season of, of The New Who with The Ninth Doctor. And the next episode of that uh, was going to be uh, th- an episode called The Dalek, uh, which would be the first reintroduction of the Daleks into New Who. So uh, it was your suggestion, Jimmy, that it would be fun to kind of go back and look at the original introduction of the Daleks uh, before we look at the, uh, re- reintroduction. the reintroduction, the return of the Daleks uh, in this next episode. So um, that was what you'll be getting uh, next week. But before we before we uh, wrap up, we had some feedback I want to get to um, uh, from our Facebook page on uh, the Unquiet Dead, which is uh, the uh, second episode of the ni- uh, Ninth Doctor uh, season. Um, Tammy says it was another fun podcast. The only point I was a little this was on Facebook. On Facebook, yes. Uh, the only point I was a little surprised is y'all didn't discuss y'all. I love that because I'm married to a Texan, so that's was that y'all didn't discuss uh, I, the, I think, very interesting moral quandary slash argument between Rose and the Doctor regarding the recycling of the corpses by the, the, the Geith, the Geith, I forget how you pronounce it. Uh, I mean, I realize it was moot by the end when, when everyone realized the Geith were evil beings intent on world domination, but it definitely struck me as an interesting point. Um, yeah, so what do you think? I mean, that the, 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 the you know, if the Geith, the Geith, the Geith, were not evil beings intent on world domination, but simply alien creatures who um, wanted the the bodies of the of of the dead to to live on. What do you think is the the moral aspect that from our from our we we all three of us commit uh, commit morality issues from a Catholic point of view, so that's how we'll express ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, others may have different points of view, but. Um, so what do you think? Uh, I mean, is it like organ donation, except it's a whole body donation? Well, I was just going to make that point. Um, it is morally licit to donate particular organs once you're no longer using them. Um, and so is if it were being done 
in a way that didn't violate the wishes of the uh, of the deceased, then um, you might have an argument there. Now, there would be some kind of uh, tricky bits like, okay, well, what about the brain? You know, everything else in your body is sort of auxiliary and it's more easier to see, well, okay, I could donate uh, a, a lung or a finger mm -hmm. or a cornea or blood or whatever. But the brain is tied to your identity in a way that nothing else is. But we have to recognize that in this fictional universe, um, I mean, in ours, you couldn't even have this happen. Right. And so um, so we have to leave some room for the fact this is another universe that operates according to different rules. Um, in principle, I mean, your real identity, your soul has gone off to meet its eternal destiny and the brain is a physical organ thereafter. Um, so if it were possible, I mean, I, I could imagine someone saying, okay, well, uh, after I'm dead, I wouldn't object to someone, you know, taking part of my brain and using it to do brain surgery to repair some part of somebody else's brain that was damaged. Mm -hmm. Like, let's say, you know, Wernicke's area, that's a part of the brain that's uh, related to language processing, and you get a language disorder known as Wernicke's aphasia if your Wernicke's area is damaged. And so I could say, well, after I'm dead, okay, take my Wernicke's area and give it to someone who needs it. Um, at least speculatively, I could imagine that happening. Mm -hmm. I'm not actually volunteering. Actually, <laughs> if you look at the back of my driver's license, I'm not donating. Yes. Um, there are problems. Because I don't trust them. Well, there are, there problems, are problems with organ donation from a catholic point of view in that uh the in the real in world. order to yeah in the real world in yeah. order to uh harvest organs there's a problematic morally problematic situation where yeah. you can't take you can't be all the way dead <laughs> yeah right you can only you They'll can be mostly them dead. Yeah. using them <laughs> yes yeah. yeah you're still alive and while when they take them and that's that's a problem that's the problem yeah uh but if someone was genuinely dead you know I suppose it's possible um, if you push a little further and say, well, suppose it's not a donation. Suppose someone didn't want their body to be used. Could you use it anyway mm -hmm. if, if the situation was dire enough? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't know. It's an interesting question. Yeah. You know, and, and kind of, again, speaking from the Catholic perspective, you know, we, the reason why we have funerals, the reason why we have cemeteries and we have places where we, we lay the body out of respect is we do recognize that we are made by God, body and soul. And mm -hmm. death is the disunity of body and soul. We do not view the body as a meat and or you know, like a meat robot that our souls yeah. control, right. but that we are actually the body is intrinsic to who we are. And we're going to get it back one day. So even if, a, even if a gelth borrows your body, you're getting it back in the end. <laughs> exactly. You know, and again, that's speaking from a strictly Catholic perspective, a Christian perspective. Yeah. But, you know, that is one of the questions that would have to be raised of, you know, would this be respecting the body to allow another being to move into it? Like yeah. a possession, you know. And, and of course, there's the whole issue of, you know, demonic possessions and things like that, too, you know, that could go into this. But mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it really, you know, from a Catholic perspective, it would be very problematic, even as we do agree that using the body for science, as long as it's handled respectfully, 
is not mm-hmm. a bad thing. That's actually that's Again. a that's a really good point, Father Corey, because that is a full body donation, including the brain. Mm. Exactly. So they can take apart your brain and study it, and that's morally licit. But the, and again, as long as the body is treated with respect, and once the science is done with it, that it is it is buried again right. with respect. The only difference being that uh, the Gelth you use the body uh, uh, as a as a way of uh, like like it was alive, as opposed to. Yes. With science is the dissection, but uh, we could go on about this. I don't want to spend too much. So we're, you know, we're already at an hour in this discussion, so I don't want to go, but, it, but Tammy and also Amy who brought, who uh, asked the same thing. Uh, it was a good catch and a good call. It's a, it's a very interesting discussion. I'm glad you, uh, you got us to discuss it at least at this point. Uh, one uh, last piece of feedback, uh, Scott um, commenting on planet of the spiders, uh, John Pertwee's uh, doctor's regeneration. Uh, he says, I was looking at Wikipedia, and it looks like there's even more of a James Bond connection. It looks like during World War II, John Pertwee was in the Naval Intelligence Division with Ian Fleming. So yeah. there's a connection with between him and Ian Fleming, the creator of James Bond. So that's very cool. Uh, very interesting. Yep. So thank you. Always appreciate the feedback. Yes. Thank you, everyone, for the feedback. It's great. It adds so much to the show uh, when you give us feedback, and uh, and we appreciate it. So um, at this point, let me call up my notes again. Um, I want to. <laughs> my computer is being slow. Uh, so, but that's it. I mean, we're we're uh, we've reached the end. Um, what did you think of this classic Doctor Who episode, The Daleks? Um, let us know, like like our uh, like Scott and Amy and. Uh, Tammy did. Uh, you, you could visit us at tridio.com, T-R-I-D-E-O.com, or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page and leave us some feedback. Or you can send an email to Who at sqpn.com. We'd love to play uh, uh, voicemail feedback if, if you'd like. Um, you can record it using your smartphone or another way and, and attach it as an audio file to an email to us. Uh, you can find links to all our personal social media and websites on our show notes on tridio.com. Uh, we'll be back next week. Like I said, we'll be discussing the ninth Doctor episode, Dalek. Uh, until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining in the sharing of the secrets of Doctor Who. Always glad to be here. And Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Likewise. Uh, once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Uh, thank you for listening. And remember, my dear child, this is no time for morals. We must fight the Daleks. When will I see you again? Uh, soon, I expect. Or later. One of those.